0: I'd like you all now to turn to John chapter 21, the very last chapter of John. We've actually been at this for about 16 months, and as I said last week, it seems we've come so far from, we are so far from even scratching the surface of everything that is contained in this book but we're just going to read, uh, we'll read part that we, uh, part of the passage we went through last week, starting with verse 15, and then the passage that we are actually going to address specifically is, uh, verses 20 through to verse 25. So John chapter 21, starting at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, This he said to show what kind of death, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is, the, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. Lord, as we just sang in the song, We implore the Holy Spirit to come. Though we know the Holy Spirit lives within us, we pray for a, a special work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, so that what we receive accomplishes your purpose in our lives. I pray also, Lord, for humility as I preach this word. Lord, that I would not in any way underestimate its power, Lord, that I would not in any way overstep its bounds. Uh, And Father, that we would in no way be deprived of its blessing, Uh, just that you would bless it and speak through it to our very souls, to our very spirits. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, so we are coming to the epilogue of the epilogue of the Gospel of John. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but sometimes when I preach, I have a conclusion, and then I have a conclusion to the conclusion, and then a conclusion to the conclusion to the conclusion. Uh, John sort of does the same thing. It seems like he's done, and he takes another run. And he, uh, he does this because, and I know this, this is the way a preacher thinks. You come to the end of what you've done and then you think, there's a few loose ends here I want to tie up. And so John unapologetically does that. And I think it's, and this is not just a matter of, uh, you know, being absent-minded or anything like that. He does this in, in such a way that Uh, it actually completes and puts a a very definite closure to the whole book. So we are to the epilogue of the epilogue of the Gospel of John. It would have made sense, good literary sense, for the Apostle to end this Gospel with chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And that's what, it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Sounds like a great ending to a book. It would have also made sense for the Apostle to end after the threefold restoration of Peter. culminate. we just read that, and it's culminating with the words, that call every disciple, follow me. What a great way to end the gospel. This call to follow me. Now, because there seems to be a a tacked on ending here, some scholars have speculated that the end of the book of John was penned by someone other than the apostle. Yet, its warmth and its tone are very much in keeping with John's Character which we have observed throughout our study. This sounds, to me, it sounds exactly like John. We have seen that John is very methodical and intentional, selecting key signs and teachings specifically to accomplish his agenda, which is that people might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing, have eternal life in his name. Through the Gospel, Jesus... Through this gospel, Jesus is revealed as the Word of God made flesh. The very first chapter in the prologue, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In fact, you can't seriously read this book and come up with any other conclusion that Jesus Christ is God. The Word, which was God, made flesh. We're going to see in the final verses of John a beautiful testimony of the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ from a man who identifies himself over and over again as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What an interesting way to refer to oneself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Yet this testimony immediately follows the account of another disciple, Peter, who has just declared under intense questioning that he loves Jesus. So it's almost like we've got a disciple who loves Jesus, and we discussed the imperfection of that love last week. And then the next sentence talks about John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So you see two aspects of love there. Yet we saw last week that it was not Peter's human affection for Jesus that made him a worthy disciple. Peter could not, in good conscience, profess the unconditional agape love Jesus required. Now, you can't see it in English, but the word that Jesus asked, when the first two times he asked Peter, he says, Peter, do you agape me? And that is an unconditional, spiritual, pure love. So Peter can't, in good conscience, Profess that kind of love. He could only profess phileo, which is brotherly love. He had to acknowledge the limitations of his own affection. We saw that the unconditional love for God and neighbor, which is a requirement of the law, This is the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and mind and strength. And the second law is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says the whole law is fulfilled in those two commandments. So this love for God and neighbor, when it's translated in the New Testament, when it's brought over, the word agape is used, this unconditional love. But this love does not and cannot Come from the heart of man. No man except Jesus has ever loved God perfectly. No man except Jesus has ever loved his brother perfectly. So to put that out and say, Well, if you want to please God, If you want to receive life from him, Just love him perfectly. Only Jesus has ever done that as a human being. In Christ's restorative commands for Peter to feed my sheep. And later to follow me. We see it is God who provides the agape love. And everything else that people need to be disciples. If you even look at that last thing that Jesus said to Peter. Peter. In order that Peter, to show Peter what type of death he would die in order to glorify Christ. Peter did not surrender himself to the Lord in such a way of his own natural affection. Peter did not feed the sheep out of his own natural affection. This was God imparted love. Everything good and honorable that pleases God, everything that we have, comes from God. John's identification of himself as the disciple who Jesus loved, shows us the divine origin of salvation. Now, you might not think there's that much rolled up in that statement, but listen, God so loved the world... That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. The love started with God. The world did not receive that son. We read in John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came, the light shone in the darkness, the darkness could not comprehend it. The darkness could not receive it. The world rejected him. Now, that son that came into the world identified himself as the good shepherd who loves the sheep and gives his life for the sheep. The sheep do not supply the love. They are its recipients. The sheep respond to the shepherd's call, not because they choose him, but because he chooses them. Similarly, no man... No woman, no person can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Every true disciple owes his identity as a disciple not to his own love, but to the Savior's love. Think of it this way. If you are a Christian, you are the disciple whom Jesus loved. At the same time, we are all called To love Jesus. Though the love of God is sovereignly bestowed on all of his people. At the same time we are called to love God. Actively and intentionally. God is sovereign in calling us. Loving us. And keeping us, You want to see those three all together. Look at the book of Jude, the beginning and the end. It's only one page. It takes hardly any time to read it. But God is sovereign in calling us, loving us, and keeping us. Yet we are responsible to heed His call, to love Him with all our hearts, and follow Him wherever He leads. It's a bit of a mystery. Our salvation does not in any way depend upon us choosing God. That's all... Accomplished. He calls us, He loves us, He keeps us. And yet, we are responsible for what we do and how we respond to His message. We follow Christ not as programmed robots, but as redeemed sinners who love their Savior. As sheep who hear their Master's voice. The sheep who are dependent upon their Master for everything, for their water, for their food, for their protection, would never deny his voice. They love him, they, they come to him because they are his sheep, because they know who he is, and because he calls them. So it is not only our nature... When we receive faith and we receive life through Jesus Christ, it is not only our nature to follow Him, but it is our desire. The title of this message today is Two Disciples, One Directive. A directive is like a command. We're going to start by observing the contrast between these two disciples, Peter and John, in verses 20 and 21. Then we'll see in verse 22 the correction of a concerned disciple, where Jesus clarifies for Peter the central responsibility of discipleship. In verse 23 we'll find a clarification for future disciples. There's actually something that applies to others beyond Peter and John which corrects a potential misunderstanding of the text and points us to the sovereignty of Christ over his disciples. This is followed by a confirmation by the beloved disciple in verse 24, where John clearly identifies himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. And finally, in verse 25, we come to the conclusion of an amazed disciple, as John reflects on the unfathomable impact of the life of Jesus Christ on all of creation. Let's begin in verse 20 with the contrast between the two disciples. I'll just reread those verses, verses 20 and 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, it's significant here that Peter is um, referring to John and that John is within earshot. He's, he's hearing all of this. When Jesus says to Peter, follow me, they probably actually get up and they, they start walking. They're going to continue their conversation. John, seeing this and being um, very much absorbed in the conversation, follows along as well. Now, Jesus has just given Peter uh, uh, really a, a lot to process. He, is, uh, he has been reinstated as a disciple with the commission to feed his sheep. He has also been given a somewhat ominous prediction that in your old age, you're going to lose a lot of your autonomy. You're going to um, be led where you don't want to go. Um, and I, last week, I, I really stressed the spiritual aspect of that, where Peter's independence, his, uh, you know, his can-do attitude, I'm going fishing, you know, nothing's happening, I'm going fishing, If that sort of self-direction, that is the thing that is going to die in Peter, and he's going to become the servant of God, the, the uh The one who yields that independence to God over and over again and submits to the leading. But it also refers to the fact that he will die in such a way that will bring glory to God. So Peter is immediately concerned about his friend, John. Now these two are obviously friends. And we know this because even after John witnesses Peter's denial of Jesus three times... uh, John does not reject him. They run together to the tomb. Peter gets there first. John gets there first and waits. Then Peter goes in. Uh, They they are together. They are part of Christ's inner circle. Peter, James, and John were the three that were at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were were part of some very special events in Jesus' life. So they had an intimate bond. Uh, Even at the Last Supper, um, Peter... Uh, John mentions this in his gospel here. Uh, he recalls how Peter uh, turns aside and sees uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So there's John leaning against Jesus in that, in that very favored position as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter evidently is right beside John. Because he's able, able to, uh, ask him that question. They're friends, I think, because opposites attract. You, uh, you look at any famous duo of friends, and they succeed as friends, or as what, if, in whatever they do, often because they're opposites. You know, Wayne and Schuster. No one will recognize those names, but two comedians, and of course, um Johnny Wayne was the uh, the funny guy, and Frank Schuster was the straight man, and they played off one another. They were opposites. Well, just think of uh, Peter. Peter is impulsive. He is jumping out of the boat at least twice in the Gospels um, when he sees Jesus. Right? He runs to the tomb and dives right in. John stops and contemplates Peter. So Peter's impulsive. John is reflective. Peter is a doer. John is a discerner. Peter doesn't always think that well before he enters in. Peter, in the passage we just read, wrestles with his own love for Jesus. He's forced to examine his heart and to acknowledge, I, I phileo you, Lord. I, I, I love you. I, I have that warm affection for you. But he can't, he can't confess that agape love. So he's, he's wrestling. And Jesus, by the way, Jesus doesn't reject his love. Jesus just wants him to be honest about it. So Peter wrestles with his own love, whereas John seems to rest. He seems to rest in the love of Jesus. And he's, he's named himself. He's anonymously identified himself throughout this book until he reveals his identity at the end. As the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, when Jesus calls Peter to follow him, Peter gets up and deliberately follows him. John overhears a conversation and instinctively follows as well. Peter is naturally concerned that John, who is his close friend and has an intimate relationship with Jesus, will also have the same privilege of following Jesus. What about my buddy? What about him, Lord? Um, And he's aware of the difference in consistency and intimacy of John's relationship with Jesus and Peter's. Peter's was kind of volatile. And Peter has been restored. John apparently has never really had to have that kind of intervention by Jesus. So if I'm going to suffer, if I'm going to suffer all these things, what about John? Are you going to give him a break? Uh, or I hope John's coming with me. I, I hope these other men here are also going to be disciples with me. Peter's also concerned that John may have to die a death like the one he will have to die. Now, all I want to know, all I want to notice for now, is just that there, these are two very different men. The disciple. We can say, not that Peter would call him this, but the the disciple who loved Jesus and had to demonstrate and and had to answer Jesus' questions and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Next, in verse 22, we've seen this contrast between the two disciples. Let's look now at the correction of a concerned disciple. Peter's question about John, I think, is primarily motivated by concern. What about this man? What's going to happen to John? Um, He's... He's got this close connection and I think that he wants to maintain that. I think he doesn't want to see his friend suffer. Jesus said to him, this is a correction, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Doesn't it sound a lot like he's saying none of your business? What is that to you? Well, it might seem kind of like a a rebuke, and I, I think it is a little bit. Uh, at the same time, this is a statement that Christ is making about His own sovereignty over His people, His absolute control over all of creation. It is Christ who literally has in His hands and has planned for us. All of our days. It is he who knows how long we will be on this earth. It is he who, if he wanted to, I'm not saying he has, if he wanted to, could allow one disciple, John, to live until the end of the age. Those things are all within his purview and within his control. Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You see, Christ is identified. Jesus is identified as the creator of the world. And you you read in Genesis, it, it says in the beginning... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the New Testament commentary, we read in the Gospel of John, all things were made through him, that is Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So our very lives come from Jesus. Our physical lives come from Jesus. Our spiritual life comes from Jesus. He is absolutely in charge. He can say this far and no further. He knows the boundaries of our existence. He knows the extent of our ministry in this world. Matthew 6.27 says, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So, Jesus is simply saying, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of John. I'll see to it that he lives exactly how long. And you know what, Peter? It really is none of your business. What is Peter's business? What is every disciple's business? To worry that we, we might not uh, be able to maintain that that uh, closeness with our brothers and sisters—we don't need to worry about that. There are times when we might be completely alone. You see, that call to follow Jesus is personal. John has his call. Peter has his call. And as far as your your own um, responsibility, you need to—we need to look to Jesus. And if He has called us, our only responsibility is to follow Him. Our only responsibility as His sheep is to hear His voice and come when He calls. There will be times when there is no friend near. And we will have no one to help us but Jesus. In those times, He will be sufficient. So in this call to follow If you think of the other times when Jesus calls people to follow, it's almost always associated with sacrifice. If anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus says uh, to Peter at one point in John, Where I am going, you cannot come now. You will follow later, but you cannot come now. He's talking about going to death. But the responsibility... Okay, first of all, that God is sovereign over every person's life. And let's let's just let God be God. But let's remember that there is a responsibility, there is a call for each of us to follow. We can't follow on anyone else's call. We follow when Christ calls us. Now because of this strange statement that Jesus has just been made about John remaining and not and remaining until he comes Jesus has to clarify or actually it's John that clarifies here he he, he comes in as commentator for a moment and he says so the saying spread among this is in verse 21 21 verse 23 this clarification for future disciples it's a third point to keeping track Say The saints spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So Jesus never made any promise about John being immortal. Now, let me just say, that still doesn't rule out John being immortal. If Jesus wants it, That's the way it's going to be. But John is saying that's not what Jesus said. John wants us to get the point. And the main point is that God is in control over the length of our days and the nature of our service. That is the point. Now there's all kinds of theories. Some people think that John has never died. He's kind of hiding out someplace. And he might might be one of those two witnesses in the book of Revelation. Well... That's speculation. We we just don't know that. Um, there are there is there are perhaps some accounts of, of John dying, but the last he kind of fades off the scene in the book of on the island of Patmos, and he is known as the only disciple who was never martyred. That's kind of interesting. All of the disciple um, all of the others were killed, but John was John was not martyred. So I mean let's let's be careful with our speculation, but let's get the main point. God is in control, and this is a clarification, God is in control over the length of our days and the nature of our service. Now there's uh, something really important here in verse 24. And this is that there is a confirmation by the beloved disciple. All through this passage, we've had this mystery character, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He pops up again and again. Some people have even speculated that this could be Lazarus. And if it weren't for this last chapter, there could be a pretty strong case that Lazarus was that disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, But this last chapter doesn't let us get away with that speculation. It says, This disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. Pardon me, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know his testimony is true. So he is identifying himself, and we know that Lazarus is not among those seven disciples, but the sons of Zebedee are, and John is one of those sons. Now, there's a really... A curious, uh, way of speaking here in the last phrase, it says, we know that his testimony is true. John is saying, I'm bearing witness, I'm writing them down, and we know this is true. I'm going to suggest here, not dogmatically, but I'm going to suggest that when God's people hear God's word, The Holy Spirit bears witness that it is God's word. When God's people read the word of God, we know that it is God speaking. And we know that it is true. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this book, which in the past perhaps has been just a confusing mishmash of all these different writers and all these different times, it takes on A life of its own. And the things that never spoke to you before, they suddenly, they suddenly get in your head. And even if you don't understand them, you know that they're, they're true. And sometimes the world comes along and they challenge, it challenges the validity of scripture. And would like to say, well, how, how do you believe that? How do you know it's true? Well, John gives us one clue here. It's written by witnesses. It's written by people who saw it happen. Even when we read the Apostle Paul's uh, summary of the Gospel, it says, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. So we've got that written account. And was buried, and rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then he was seen by all of these people, Up to 500 at a time, some of whom were still alive when the Apostle Paul wrote and distributed that letter. So there is lots of, there are lots of reasons to believe these strong eyewitness testimonies. The fact that the four gospels give the same events in different language, they remember different details, but as we've seen, we can, we can dovetail them together so that there's a consistent testimony. It's not just people copying one another, trying to get their story straight in the court of law. These are genuine, honest testimonies. There's that, there's evidence. But there's also, we know that these things are true. A Christian knows, someone who has the Spirit of God knows. When they read the Gospel of John, that this is true. This really is Jesus. He has declared himself. He has made himself known. And though we have not seen him, we believe because God has done this wondrous work in our faith, in our, in our hearts. And, and he has given us spiritual eyes. So though we never saw Jesus crucified, though we never witnessed his resurrection, when we hear the testimony of the gospel, we know that it is true. It's like we were there. We believe these things. So, this, this witness, this confirmation, he's saying these things are true. And I think he's saying more than just take my word for it. I think he's saying, if you've made it this far in this book, and if you've read this with an open mind, you know that these things are true. Because the Spirit of God will be drawing you. You will hear the voice of the Master calling as you read this. Now, let's get to the conclusion, the very last verse of the Gospel of John. And I call this the conclusion of an amazed disciple. John is completely blown away as he contemplates everything that Jesus has done. And I don't think he's limiting this to the things that Jesus did while he walked on the earth. Because he said, he started out saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word created everything that exists. And then the Word became flesh. And then the whole account of everything that Jesus did while he was in the flesh. All of these things are recorded for us. But John says, now these, there are many other things that Jesus did. And we we know that even if we read the other three Gospels, they have a lot of data that John doesn't have. John specifically selects seven of this, seven of that, and he makes his case for the deity of Jesus Christ and and, uh, convinces us that we need to believe. Now, he then says, were every one of them to be written... I suppose that the world itself could not contain all the books that can be written. Now that seems like hyperbole, or exaggeration, doesn't it? This whole world, if this whole world were made up of books, that wouldn't be enough. Well, in one sense, perhaps it is hyperbole, if we were just to look at the life of Jesus. Um, but when you consider... When you consider who Jesus is, when you consider that he existed before there was a beginning, according to John 1, 1, that he existed in the bosom of the Father, that he was there in creation, that he is the word that said, let there be light and there was light You start to think of every single person who has come to faith and has been brought to life through faith in Jesus Christ from from the time that he ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit was given. Start to think about that. Start to think about every story of what Jesus has done. Start to, start to think about the people that he has rescued from the very pit of destruction and place their feet upon a rock, as Psalm 40 says, and give them a firm place to stand and put a song in their mouth, a song of praise to our God, so that many will fear and trust in the Lord. You start to see how the world could not contain everything that is written. Now, I've discovered something else about the language that John uses here. It was common among the rabbis, and they would record this in places in the Talmud, it was common, a common belief, that the entire law of God, that the people learned, could not be contained. They saw God's word as inexhaustible in its riches, in its application. You could study it forever and ever and write books forever and ever and you would never reach the end of it because it is different than any book written by any human being. It is inexhaustible. It is always new. It is always revealing more of the human condition. It is always revealing more of our need for the Savior, and it is always more brilliantly displaying that Savior, the more we study it. Listen to this quote from one of the rabbis. I, I don't know exactly who it was. It says this, If all the seas were ink, and the bulrushes pens, and the heavens and the earth volumes, and the children of men, scribes, they would not be sufficient to write the law which we have learned. That's talking about the word of God, and I, that was a a, a statement from a, a people, the people who loved the word of God. They might not have understood it, and most of the most of the rabbis didn't, especially in Jesus' day, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Most of them missed it. But they had this sense of the supernatural, divine character of God's word. Now, when Muhammad came along in the 6th century, he uh, borrowed a lot of the thinking from the, the, uh, the Jews. And, in fact, Islam is informed by by. Christianity, by Christianity and Judaism, but it is it is actually a I would say a distortion of both of those things with some other um, spiritual insight that is not from God that kind of messed it all up. But listen to what the Quran says. It's almost the same language. And if whatever trees upon the earth were pens and the sea was ink replenished thereafter by seven more seeds. The words of Allah would not be exhausted. Indeed, Allah is exalted in might and wise. Now, why am I bringing up these two quotations? Well, there is, amongst people who at least desire to know God, there is an understanding that His word, His declaration is inexhaustible. There's a Christian hymn writer that wrote a hymn. You probably know which one I'm thinking of already. expresses some very similar things. It's called The Love of, Love of God. It says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill, and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretch from sky to sky. The point I want to make in all of this is that John in this last sentence, in this last amazing quotation, He is actually reiterating the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God, by equating the things that Jesus did. That is the life of Jesus Christ as God incarnate with the inexhaustible riches of the written word of God. So he knew that this is the way that the Jewish scholars thought about the Word of God. And he probably agreed with them. God's Word is inexhaustible. But what is Jesus? Jesus is God's Word made flesh. Jesus is God in human flesh. God can never be fully articulated or understood by His creation. You know, the... The Jewish rabbis they would try and they would try to to lay out the mystery of God and 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 the people who who really thought they could lay out and explain the mystery of God they drifted into something they shouldn't have drifted they wrote the Kabbalah they wrote a forbidden book the Bible says the hidden things belong to God and they tried to exhaust the mystery of God Christians have done it too. Cult leaders have done this, and they've said, well this is, we've got it all figured out. But the word, God, God Himself can never be articulated or understood fully by His creation. If we could fully understand everything about God, wouldn't we be equal to God? We are His creation. There are things that He has hidden from us. But He has revealed so much to us. He has given us this nice little condensed summary in the Gospel of John. And he has said, these things were written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that believing you might have life through his name. This is what you really need to know. But the world could not contain all the books if everything were written. So God cannot be fully articulated or understood by His creation, nor can the depths of God's Word ever be fully expounded. We could be writing from now to eternity, and the scroll could not contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Nor can the wonderful works of the God-man be fully documented. So this... I believe John ends with a flourish here. And if we really understand the wonder of, of what has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. where first introduced in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. We beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. That same word became flesh and dwelt among us. That same word, that same word became flesh, lived among us, declared himself to be God's Messiah, to be God's redemption, to be God's sacrifice for sin. Jesus came and obeyed his Father, was obedient to the death of the cross, and on the cross, having Received the Father's wrath, having taken upon himself the sin of the world. He cried out, it is finished. Because he had finished, he had accomplished everything necessary to redeem lost sinners for God. And through faith in him, through faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into this extremely privileged Position of being his disciples, of being his followers. As his followers, he promises that he will lose none of us. He will keep us. He will discipline us. He will lovingly shepherd us. But he will lose none. Of what the Father has given. All right. Well that. I'm running out of word, so I And I'm and, and running on fumes here too. So. I, I trust that. These 14 months have been. Valuable to you. I encourage you to go back. And, and listen to some of those messages. If you missed one or two. I think we, we didn't get all of them online. Uh, but. I trust this has been a blessing for you. It's been a blessing for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for... um, just for your guidance and for your help as we have read and studied and and preached and received your message from the Gospel of John. I pray, Lord, that we would read it again and again and each time would discover new riches new grace, new hope, new new expressions of your love. I pray, Lord, that as we read it, we would see our sin, we would see our desperate need of a Savior, and we would look to Jesus, the one who was lifted up, the one who has made sin for us. And Lord, that we would trust in Him, the one who died was raised from the dead, and now is ascended in glory, and who will return again to receive to himself all who trust in him. And so we look forward to that day. We thank you for for all that Jesus is to us. We pray in his name. Amen.